your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, and we're still studying verses 1 through 10 in this first chapter, and I want you to keep this part of the Scripture open. I'm not going to read those 10 verses, but I, I'm, if you'll just look at verse 9 for just a moment, it says here, When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, uh, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Now, the occasion for this first part of Galatians chapter 2, as we've been discussing, is a dispute between Paul and a faction in the church that's known as the Judaizers, and they were arguing with him on the doctrine of justification. Now, after Paul had founded the Galatian churches, there were these people that came up from Jerusalem, and they began to teach something different from what Paul was teaching, and they said that they had the sanction of the apostles in Jerusalem, and they disagreed with Paul. Those apostles disagreed with Paul. And Paul is showing here, and as we'll see in just a few minutes as we go through this, that there was actually no disagreement between him and the apostles. Uh, they were teaching, or, or I should say the Judaizers were teaching, that people needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul said that wasn't true. And, you know, we mentioned that that uh, circumcision quite a bit, the Jewish ritual of circumcision, without going into a long, detailed explanation of what that's all about. Uh, circumcision is just a covenant sign for Israel. It's uh, It showed this special, unique relationship that the Israelites had with God. And the Judaizers were saying that what needed to happen was this law of circumcision needed to be carried over into the Christian faith, and anybody who wasn't circumcised could not be justified with God. And to Paul, that was just a very serious error, because that nullified the gospel of grace. It was antithetical to Christ's teachings, and it meant that the death of Christ on the cross was not sufficient to pay for our sins, but that God has some other requirement. That there is some other thing that has to be done, some work for us to do in order for us to be right with God. So that was a very serious issue in the, in the early church, and it was necessary for the apostles to make a definitive statement about what they believed in, on justification and to condemn this particular viewpoint as heresy. Now, the problem... Uh, in Galatians 2, is that Paul's apostleship and his teachings were being undermined by these false teachers that came from Jerusalem. And so the churches in Galatia were in danger of being destroyed. So the question here is, who is teaching the right gospel? Uh, Judaizers, again, they claim the apostles agree with them. Paul says they don't agree with them. And uh, he was teaching a gospel of justification by faith alone. And Paul knew what he was talking about as far as what those apostles in Jerusalem believed. And as he deals with the Galatian church, he brings up this incident where he had uh, conversations and had arguments with these Judaizers in the past. And this issue had already been decided and he knows, and they, he wants them to know, that the apostles in Jerusalem did not agree with their claims. Now, Galatians chapter 2 is a very brief summary of a council that took place in Jerusalem to discuss this problem. Now, the activities of the council are recorded in Acts chapter 15. So what I'd like you to do now is to go to Acts 15, and we'll see what happened in this Jerusalem meeting and how the apostles handled this question of Gentile circumcision. 
And while you're turning there, the sixth point of your outline is what we've been discussing, and that is the conference at Jerusalem. And this conference is described here in Acts chapter 15. So we go here and we continue the discussion that we began last week uh, looking at this, this chapter. And we've covered the first five verses that describe the problem. Verse number one says that there were people that came from Judea and they went to Antioch. This is where, uh, this is where the problem was at that time and said, unless a person was circumcised according to the laws of Moses, then they couldn't be saved. Now, that is a very straightforward statement. And that's, that's something that really needs to be closely examined by anyone who thinks that there's some good thing, there's some work you can do, some sacrament that you might keep, anything in order to help you to get to heaven. Now, the way that, that this is stated here in, in verse number 1, we already know where this is headed. There's not going to be any agreement on this heretical doctrine. And we understand that circumcision is representative of any human effort when it comes to being justified with God. And in verses 2 through 4, we have the same information that we have at the beginning of Galatians 2, that Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem to confer with the apostles about this false doctrine. So tonight we're going to take up the second part of this excursus that we're doing on Acts chapter 15. And I want to discuss with you the declaration against legalism. Last week we talked about bewitched by legalism and, the, uh, legalism, and that's where we got the definition of what legalism is. And it sounds just like what it is. It's that there is some point of the law that you have to keep in order to be justified. And when you admit to one point of the law, what's happened is you've destroyed, destroyed justification by faith alone and salvation by grace. And it only takes one law. It only takes one law to do that, but you'll find this to be true, that when anyone brings uh, legalism into the question of justification, that all points of the law are opened up, and all points of the law have to be kept. So those that believe in keeping any point of the law, they end up with so many rules that nobody knows how many of them have to be kept to be saved. In our study in Matthew, where Jesus dealt with the scribes and Pharisees, has already borne that out. Now, we notice verse number 5 in Acts 15. It says, But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, here, here you see that there are some among this group that were Pharisees, and they were right on top of this. They said, That's right. What we really need is more law. Whenever you see a Pharisee in Scripture, he's in love with the law. And there's just, it seems like he, the Pharisees never saw a law they didn't like. Now we continue here with verse number 6, and we're going to see three arguments that are presented against the Judaizers. Verse 6 says, And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. Now the first argument is made by Peter. So we'll look at Peter's argument against legalism. And the basis for Peter's argument is what happened when he preached the gospel of Christ to the Gentile Cornelius. In the seventh verse it says, And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, Peter was an authority on Gentile conversion because 
God came to him with very specific instructions that he was to go to Caesarea and preach to the Gentile Cornelius. That's recorded in Acts 10 and 11. And this coming Sunday night, we're going to talk specifically about what happened in that chapter. But this was very well documented with the apostles. Uh, They knew that Peter had been given a unique vision that showed that Gentiles had been included in God's marvelous plan of salvation. Nobody was going to dispute Peter because when that happened, there were others of the Jews that were present with him and they witnessed this. They saw what happened when Peter preached to Cornelius. And so Peter stood up and he begins to outline a logical argument concerning God's method of saving Gentiles. And uh, really it comes down to this. If Cornelius, a Gentile, can be saved without circumcision, then any Gentile can be saved without circumcision. So he begins his argument. And the first part of it is based upon the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, And God which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them, now he's talking about the household of Cornelius, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. So Peter starts out with the strongest argument, which is the testimony of God himself. God verified the inclusion of the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. Now those, I hope everybody's familiar with what happened on the day of Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit fell on the church and the Spirit enabled them to speak in in tongues that they had never learned. And that same type of miracle happened when Peter went to preach in Acts 10 and spoke to Acts 10 and 11 and spoke to Cornelius. Now Luke relates this to us in Acts 10, while Peter yet spake these words, or when he talked to them about Christ and the gospel and so forth, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So the descent of the Holy Spirit on those people was evidence that they had believed to the salvation of their souls. Now the point that Peter wants to make with this argument is that the Holy Spirit was given to them without any other requirement. All the Gentiles did was believe the gospel when preached by Peter. I remember uh, many years ago when my father was debating with some Campbellites over the necessity of baptism, this is one of the scriptures that he appealed to with a great effect. Because here, Cornelius and his household received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. Now, there is no lost person that has the Holy Spirit. If that's a true statement, which we know that it is, that means that they were saved without baptism. So that means that baptism can't be one of the requirements for salvation. In fact, Paul states in 1 Corinthians 12, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man, speaking by the Spirit of God, calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. So it's impossible to be saved without, the, without Holy Spirit intervention. Anybody who confesses Christ by the Holy Spirit, that person is saved. So that shoots down legalism. And the argument against circumcision is the same that you would make as an argument for baptism, for sacraments, for any good work that you might do. Because the Holy Spirit is given prior to any good works, and there are no works that we can ever do for God until, unless they're actually done in the power of the Holy Spirit. So if a, Holy, if a Holy, uh, person has the Holy Spirit in him, then how could you conclude anything other than he's been justified with God? So that's a very clear point and a damaging one for legalism. 
Then Peter's second point is the equality of all people. Now we find that in verse number 9, and put no difference between us and them, that is, no difference between Jews and Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. Now there are two important aspects in that statement. Back in chapter 10, Peter said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Now, there are many people that misunderstand that statement. That does not mean that God is no respecter of persons in, in regard to his chosen people. For certainly God does have respect for his chosen people. But what it means is that there's no one that's been chosen by God. No one receives salvation because of race, because of nationality, their ethnicity, social standing, or anything else. That does not affect God's choice of people for salvation at all. So that means that Gentiles and Jews can be saved. And then the second important point in that statement is that God purifies the heart by faith. And that's another strong statement against legalism. Faith is what saved the Jews, and since God made no difference between Jews and Gentiles, then that tell then then the Gentiles are saved also by faith, just as Jews are. And the number of places in Scripture that bear that out, that salvation without the works, is without the works of the law, by faith without the works of the law, are just simply too many for us even to, even to talk about tonight. But I do want to talk about two specifically that are very important, and they relate to Paul's argument against, uh, uh, or Paul's argument relating to the circumcision of Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, In verse number 1, he says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he have whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Then going down to verse 9, Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Now, it would be very, very hard to argue the necessity of circumcision for the imputation of righteousness when the father of the Jews, Abraham, was found righteous because of his faith before he was ever circumcised. And remember, when you hear me say circumcision... That, that's probably not something that you're going to think about every day, not, not the, something real familiar to you. Think about anything else. Think about anything else that people are told to do in order to be saved. You fit it right in that box that uh, Paul is proving here that there wasn't anything that Abraham had to do according to the law, not circumcision is what he's dealing with the Jews, in order for him to be right with God. And uh, it's just really hard for, for the Jews to overcome this argument about what happened to Abraham. So that's actually Paul's argument. And Peter's not going to be unhappy because we bring Paul into it and give him some testimony, even though he, he speaks later here. Uh, Peter would agree with all of this. And then going on with this, Peter has a third point to make. Thirdly is the weakness of the flesh. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God? to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. What does the law do for us? Well, the law is good. God gave the law. We know it's good. But the law has to be kept in its place. The law wasn't given to save people. The law was given to accentuate the reality of our sinfulness and our hopelessness in keeping the law to the perfection that God requires. 
So if we try to be justified by anything that we do, then the law of God ends up to be the worst of all curses. And that's because of the weakness of our flesh. The fallen sinful nature keeps us from keeping any law of God. I don't care what it is. It keeps us from keeping any law of God to perfection. And Jesus showed that clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. And he showed the people, when when you think that you've done a great job, that you never killed anybody, he asked the question, well, have you ever been angry without a cause? And you think your performance is stellar because you've kept yourself pure from an adultery. And he says, have you ever looked on a woman to lust after her? And then what about lying? You ever make a promise that you didn't keep? I mean, how many people have told a lie? You see, the last thing that you ever want God to do is to judge you on your performance. The weakness of the flesh is a killer for justification by keeping of commandments. And you know what I usually say here in a place like this, have you ever met a perfect person? And then I say the only perfect person, of course, is your mother-in-law. But everybody else is imperfect. All of us are sinners. Well, when Peter presented the argument, he very sternly said, Why tempt ye God? Now, that means to tempt God means to test his patience and to provoke him. So, in other words, Peter said, When God is so clear about this, how you are justified, why do you keep asking for more evidence? And the thing here is that that God alone is the one who saves, so God is the one who has the right to set all the requirements for salvation. And so his point here, the weakness of the flesh, the inability to keep the law, prevents salvation by the law. Then he has a fourth argument. Fourthly, is the sufficiency of grace. So why do we need a law to satisfy or to satisfy God when God's grace is sufficient? Now you look at verse number 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved, even as they. So Peter concludes his arguments by making it crystal clear. Salvation is all of grace, and God's grace is sufficient to save any soul. doesn't make any difference if that soul is Jew or Gentile. God does not need our help. Peter says, grace saves us all. We shall be saved, even as they. And that's kind of a little bit of a twist there because instead of saying they shall be saved even as we are, he says we shall be saved even as they. And he couldn't have said that in a better way. As one so aptly wrote here, circumcision in our case being no advantage and in their case uncircumcision no loss, but grace doing all for both and the same for each. So Peter makes a compelling argument against legalistic justification, and that should really settle the question. I mean, he he shows these people that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit when they were uncircumcised. He argues for the equality of all people being purified by the same method. He argues for the inability of us for uh, of us keeping the law because of the weakness of our flesh, and he argues against this idea of legalism because of the sufficiency of God's grace to cover all of our sin. Now, at that point, you would think, well, that's enough said. Enough enough said. There's enough proof here. But this is a conference that we're talking about. What happens at conferences? Well, lots of people talk at conferences. So we have another person that stands up and makes a plea against this, and that's Paul. Paul's argument against legalism. And I say Paul's argument, but that also includes Barnabas because he got up to speak as well with Paul. And they approach things from a little bit different angle. You know, if Paul had taken 
the time to make all of the arguments that there are against legalism, then what we would have to do is to insert the book of Romans in Acts 15, and we'd have to put Galatians in Acts 15, then we have to go combing through all these other places where Paul wrote and many others on the issue and put it all in there. And there's just multiple passages on that. But we're going to have time to look at some of those things later on. So Paul and Barnabas begin with, first of all, the report of their journey. Verse 12 says, Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. Now, the Scriptures don't give us that report, the details of that report in this place, because they've already been given. That's Acts 13 and 14. Now, if you look back in chapter 14, at verse number 27, Paul made their first missionary trip. Paul and Barnabas made the first missionary trip, and that, of course, included uh, going to the Galatian churches. That's where they got started. Then they returned to Antioch to report about it. And verse 27 says, And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. Now, that's, a, that's an important statement. The report begins by giving glory to God for all the work that has been accomplished and the fact that God opened the door of faith to Gentiles. So now we see Paul stressing faith as well. And he says God is the one who opens the door. Now John Gill points out the meaning of open the door of faith, the dual meaning. He says the sense here seems to be that God had given an opportunity to the Gentiles to preach the doctrine, or the apostles rather, to preach the doctrine of faith unto the Gentiles, and the Gentiles had had an opportunity of hearing and embracing it. God had opened the mouths of his ministers to preach to them, and he had opened their hearts to attend unto it and to receive it. For it may be understood of his giving of them of the grace of faith by which they receive Christ and his gospel into their hearts. And the point of that statement is to show us how God works on both ends of salvation. He, he sends the saving gospel by his witnesses to give it to people that are lost. And then he opens the heart of the people that hear the gospel in order that they might receive it and believe it. Now, secondly, uh, Paul's argument and Barnabas' arguments are the practical proofs of experience. Verse 12 tells us they declared signs and wonders that God wrought among the Gentiles. Now, if you read that just casually, you're gonna, you, you would just miss the importance of that argument. Who is it that Paul's addressing? Well, he's speaking to Jews. He's speaking to uh, people that had need to be convinced that Gentiles can be saved. And so how does he do that? Well, what does the Scripture say? How, how do you convince the Jews of anything? Well, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, for the Jews require a sign. And so if you're going to convince Jews, logical arguments aren't enough. You have to have visible evidence. You have to have practical proof. So Paul gives them exactly what they need. He begins to talk to them, them about the signs and miracles in that first missionary journey. And those are proof that God's behind the salvation of Gentiles. And in all those stories, in all those places that Paul went, not one time do you ever read about Paul telling Gentile converts they have to be circumcised or they have to do anything else to be right with God. No other way does he talk about being saved. So Paul's argument then becomes convincing that legalism has no part of salvation because of the miracles that God did. God never shut it down. And the later writings of Paul, of course, substantiate uh, how 
much and how strongly that Paul taught the grace of God alone for salvation. Now, there's a lot of information that's behind verse number 12. We're not given it all in this particular place, but I think we can safely assume that when Paul had finished speaking and Barnabas had finished talking about all the things that God did, that was a convincing argument. So we have Peter's convention speech, and we have Paul and Barnabas. Now we turn our attention to the last one who speaks, and that is James' argument against legalism. Verse 13, And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Now, based on this scripture, many people believe that James is or was the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church. Now, I'll remind you what I told you last week. We're not talking about James the Apostle. He'd already died prior to this time. We're speaking here about James, who was the Lord's brother, the Lord's half-brother. And most likely, he was the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church. And so he then... He speaks because he's the official representative of the church. And what he says is actually in response to the arguments that Peter and Paul made, and so he gives his support to what they said. Now, we notice here two aspects of James' argument. First of all, the scriptures support inclusion of Gentiles. You see, you can argue all the matters of religion that you want to argue, but it always comes back to this. What does the Bible say? There's only one proof that we trust implicitly and that's what the bible says so we don't put church tradition we don't put anybody's opinion up here we look and see what does the bible say about it so james began began by telling them that what peter said is what the bible says now listen to him very closely beginning at verse 14 simeon that would be peter simeon hath declared how god at first did visit the gentiles to take out of them a people for his name and to disagree the words of the prophets As it is written, after this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord. And all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. You see what James says? The prophets agree with this. And so he went back to the the scriptures to see if there is support there, and he found the prophet Amos said the same thing. Now, this is the way the Old Testament states it. Let me read it to you from Amos 9. In that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. Now, there the tabernacle of David. That has reference to the temple. The time period he's actually talking about would be the millennial reign, that God is going to rebuild. Uh, God's going to see that the temple is rebuilt. In verse 12 it says, If they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord, saith the Lord that doeth this. Now you see there, the remnant of Edom and all the heathen which are called by my name. You might not be too happy to know that the Bible says that you're a heathen. And I'm a heathen. All Gentiles are heathens, according to the word of God. But the point here is that Gentiles would also be included in the covenant of grace. So James found support for Gentile conversions in Old Testament scripture. And the indication is that the Gentiles received their inclusion without the same laws and customs of the Jews. So once again, these, these legalists are delivered a, a blow because it's, just, it's not just the testimony of Paul's experience. I mean, we can talk about people's experiences all we want. When you find it in the Bible, 
when you go back and see what the Bible says, you have the testimony of God himself. So that's what we preach. We preach God's word because when God says it, that settles it forever. Now, let's relate the next part of James' argument, and and this is really one of my favorite scriptures. Verse number 18. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Now, the second point is that the scriptures support God's foreknowledge of events. Now, there's a wealth of information in this verse, and I'm going to resist all the urges to go to the places this can take us and reduce it to simplest terms without bringing in all the multiple doctrines that I really would like to talk to you about. But the meaning is, simply, God has a plan. And his plan stretches from eternity past into eternity future, and God knows every minute detail of that plan. There aren't any contingencies to be worked out. There's nothing that's left to chance. God's never caught by surprise because he always works things according to his perfect plan. He knows the beginning to the end, and nothing in that plan will ever change. Now, some parts of God's plan he tells us about. I mean, I can't sit here and, or stand here tonight and tell you well, I know everything about God's plan. I don't because God hasn't revealed everything about his plan. But there are some parts that he has told us about, and the subject that we're talking about here, he already told us about. Years before Peter and Paul and, and James and Judaizers and Galatians, God said that he would include the Gentiles. Now, if that's, a, if that's a part of his plan, then the Judaizers can argue against it all they want. It's not going to change. And since a person is justified by faith and it's always been that way, then there's no way that they're going to be able to impose circumcision upon Gentile Christians. There isn't any scriptural basis for it. God, and God never changes his plan. So how crazy would it be for the apostles to say, well, I think we need to throw something else in here. I think uh, right now we need to tell people they need to be circumcised. It's as crazy as some church rising up 1,500 years ago, coming up 1,500 years ago, and saying, I think we'll add something else. I think we'll add a priesthood to this. I think we'll add worship of Mary. I think that we'll add uh, praying to saints. I think that we'll add uh, the rosary. And I think that we'll add this and we'll add that. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. You don't have any right to throw anything into God's plan. You can't change God's plan. That's what I tell everybody about salvation if they got some other way. Salvation is by grace through faith, and that's always been God's plan. Paul said, let anybody else who thinks something differently or teaches something different be anathema. And so what do we do? We add nothing to the gospel. We take nothing away from it. We add nothing to faith and take nothing away from it. Now, after all of that, James hands down the verdict. Verse number 19, wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them from which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. I don't have time to talk to you about everything that's said in the verdict because this goes all the way down to verse number 35. And next week we'll talk a little bit about some of those things. And, and we'll get back to Galatians 2 and then we will wrap up these first 10 verses. But look at verse 24 as we finish. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. So the verdict is, leave the Gentiles alone. Don't impose anything else upon them. Paul was dead right about it. Uh, The gospel is faith alone and Jesus Christ alone, and there is no disagreement among the apostles. Everybody agrees on the same gospel that's being preached. 
So the Judaizers can't tell anybody they need to be circumcised to be saved. The apostles didn't send them and never said anything about it. And the Jerusalem church is the same as the Antioch church, same as the Galatian churches. It's the same for any church that wants to be known by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Any church that wants to be called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has to have this one type, this one gospel, justification by faith alone. So that's true today. It's always going to be true until the time that we get to heaven because known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. God's not going to change. That's it. That settles it. Case closed. End of discussion. Except it's not the end of discussion. Because you'll go home tonight, and most likely on your way home, somewhere or another, you'll probably pass a church that still believes the Judaizers instead of the apostles. So we're still arguing about it. 2,000 years later, we've still got Judaizers to deal with. People who believe there are other things that have to be done for people to be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time tonight. And for our people who've come out to hear, we, we praise your name, Lord, for those who are interested in the word of God and uh, knowing what is the background of our faith. Why do we believe what we do? What are the arguments from Scripture that show us that what we believe about the gospel of Christ is the right belief? Lord, show us that and help us to remember these things when we, when we talk to people. A very confused world, confused people that naturally have a fallback position to, I must do something in order to be saved. Help everyone that we talk to to understand salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. In his name we pray, amen.